Good afternoon, everyone. Mazal Tov to Flomin family for the birth of their daughter. <coughs> May they see lots of nachas from her and happiness and have more children to come, Bezrat Hashem. I will speak briefly to give you a little introduction about a few things that I'm very interested for all of us to know. And then later on, we brought you <coughs> three CDs. Feel free to grab as, ma as many as you want. Also for your friends. They're very, very popular CDs. We give tons of them, Baruch Hashem. And they were translated to many languages, and they go all over the world. And the website is booming. That means they're good. If they wouldn't, if they wouldn't be good, they wouldn't be so successful. So give it a chance. Listen to it in a car. Some of them are DVDs. It will, it will educate you a lot. The topic I chose, I asked uh, Israel Stanley, Israel in Hebrew, I asked him what kind of audience we're going to have. So he told me we're going to have a mixed mix audience. Some are religious more, some less. Some have uh, questions. So I decided to speak in a little, uh, in a mix, in a mix of beginners and some more advanced. But the main purpose of this talk is for those who have a doubt and they have questions that are very, very important in life, that they will go into the CDs and would listen to it and watch it, and they will get the answers to all their questions. Today, as we all know, the Jewish nation is divided to two groups, observant and not. People who observe mitzvot and people who does not. Of course, you can take each group and divide it to many different groups. Some are more, some are less, some are nothing at all, some are very high. There's many, many different groups. I'm not here to rate people. I'm just here to talk to the group that is not observant for only one thing for only one thing to bring it to their attention. There is one claim. The Jewish people, one day came to the world 3,300 years ago, and they say, God gave us a book. It was in a public event. The Gentiles of that generation did not try to deny it. They all agreed. They all say, yes, God gave you the book. How do we know? Because when we review Christianity and Islam, we see that they, in their books, testify that the Jewish people received the Torah from the creator of the world in a public event. None of them, none of them, no matter how much antisemitism they had among them, they still did not try to rewrite history. Remember, Christianity 1,300 years after Judaism started. So for 1,300 years, the Jews were spreading the Torah. There were no other major religion, no Islam, no Christianity. There are many, many cults, always, even before Judaism were given. But no one ever tried to deny that the Jews received the Torah from God. Even today, any religious Christian person, you ask him, do you agree? that God came to Mount Sinai and gave his book to the Jewish nation? The answer would be absolutely yes. This is what we call the Old Testament. You ask the Muslim, include the Hamas murderers, do you agree that God gave the Torah to the Jews? 
What's the answer? They tell you, you don't have to ask me that. Go to the Hamas uh, summary over there in the internet, the foundation of the Hamas, and, re and read that everything we wrote over there is based on the fact that God gave the Torah to the Jews. We just believe that it's our job to punish the Jews and teach them a lesson for betraying God. That's, what they, that's how the Hamas funded. Sheikh Yassin, first thing he wrote, the Jews got few chances from God. They betrayed him. Now it's our job to teach them a lesson. We won't leave them alone because they betrayed God. And you can see today the results of what he wrote. That was many, many years ago when they started the Hamas. Today we see that they meant every word that they, that they said. But I'm not here to talk about war, and I'm not here to talk about politics. I'm only here to clarify one point. The Jews came and they said to the world, God gave us this Torah in a public event. But even if you try to deny it, it will take us maximum an hour to prove to you that this book could never be written by any human being, no matter how sophisticated he is, no matter what kind of equipment you give him, no matter if you give them all the most brilliant people ever lived, and give them a mission. We want you to contradict that the Torah was not given by the creator of the world. They won't be able to succeed. Why? I've been doing it for 20 years. I have professors, I have scientists from NASA, I have people who attack me from all over, but usually the arguments is over within minutes. Most of the time the arguments come from their ignorance. Either they misunderstood or they just did not know the details. As soon as they find out the details, the opposite happened. They become supporters of the Torah. I had one time a scientist from NASA in the first film that I made 15 years ago with primitive budget. Was the, the name of it was Divine Information. That's why I named my website divineinformation.com. Because that primitive film did so well, we made more than half a million copies in a tiny Israel. So that's 10% of the population receive a copy of the film. So therefore, he, we made a translation to English. And he attacked, I brought over there 10 proofs, and he attacked seven of them. And after going back and forth, six of them he admitted. One of them we stayed in an argument. Okay, one out of 10, no big deal. Nine proofs he, he accepted that it cannot be given by human being. Only the one who created the world was able to know it. So 90% achievement for such an intellectual person, a big scientist from NASA, just to show you how powerful is the material is. I'm not here to discuss how do you know there is a God, how do you know that he supervises everything we do, because it's all written in a book. All I have to do is to prove that the book could not be written by a regular human being. If I prove that the book was written by the same one who created the book, the world, Therefore, from that moment on, there's no point of arguing anymore. Why? All we have to do is to read what the book says. There are two ways to prove that God exists. One, you look at the creation, you look at the order, you understand that something like this cannot come out of a random explosion, out of nowhere a brain of a human being came. Obviously, someone designed it. You look at the oxygen, you look at the water, you look at billions of galaxies who always move and none of them collides with each other. 
you see the gravity, you see everything that we need, everything was organized in such a beautiful creation to come and, and, and claim that something like this happened by a random explosion or millions of explosions who created such a sophisticated creation, I think it's insulting. That's really my opinion, to claim such a thing. Because if I tell you that the watch was created by a random explosion on my way here, all kinds of things started to fly in the air and connected together, and they created a watch. Then you would say, Flomin, why are you wasting our time this afternoon inviting this lunatic here? <laughs> I mean, come on, would well, you really believe that this watch was created by a random explosion on his way here to, the, to this place? You really believe that nonsense? Then my answer would be to you, you don't believe about the watch, but you, be, you believe about the entire creation with a trillion times more sophisticated than this watch. So what's going on here? Either you follow your belief 100% or you contradict yourself. So my answer to you is, that's a separate argument. If you watch my film Torah and Science, I go to all the steps, how we know God created the world, what's the purpose of the creation, and that. But I'm only here to specify one point. How do you know if a book is divine or not? That's really the main question here today. The answer is, once you review the book, you don't have to finish it. If you read the first page, if you find human error in the first page, that moment this book is finished. You don't waste another minute on it. If you have extra time to waste, it's your, it's your choice. But as soon as you find a human error in a book, then you know one million percent. You don't need two uh, human errors. One, it's enough. You know that this book was not given by God. And if it was, it was altered by people. Therefore, we can never rely on it. If it was given by God, the people who copy it or the people who transfer it interfere with the text of the book. Why? because we find human errors. The original book of God cannot have any human errors. God cannot write in a book the Twin Towers collapse in Brooklyn. Because if it says it in a book, then we won't waste another minute on that book because we cannot rely on a book if it doesn't know such an event where it took place or all kinds of other events in history and he gave us the false information about those events, then we cannot rely on a book. However, if we review the entire book and we don't find one mistake, now we know that there is a chance that the book is divine. But let me give you two examples. On the New Testament, almost in every chapter, you find many, many human errors. It says that the cave of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is in the city of Shechem. And everyone knows in the city of Hebron. It cannot be that God doesn't know where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. In Act 7 in the New Testament, it says, Nables, Shechem, big human error. It says that Jacob went to Egypt with 75 people. But in the Torah, it says 70. What happened to God? He doesn't remember what he wrote in part 1. Now in part 2, he became 75. Can we rely on such a book? There are many, many other examples. For instance, in the book of Matthew and on the book of Luke, they describe the genealogy of J.C. They try to link him to King David because in the Torah it's saying Messiah, son of David. There's only one problem. In a book of Matthew, it describes 42 generations. In a book of Luke, 27 generations. What happened 
God doesn't remember who gave birth to who. Completely different genealogy, more than 15 mistakes, different names, complete different names, different orders. It cannot be that both genealogy is correct. When we read in the Torah that Abraham gave birth to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to Levi, so we have a right order over here. If we read in another book that Levi gave birth to Abraham and Abraham gave birth to John and John gave birth to uh, uh, Luke, then how can we rely on such a book? It describes two different genealogies for the same human being. Obviously, it's not only human errors, it's human errors in a very, very low level. Some human errors is very hard to detect. The human errors that the New Testament has, every little kid in first grade already would know right away it's a mistake, it's not from God. Let's talk about the Quran. In these days, the whole world speaking about it in this generation. The Quran had a meeting between Haman and Pharaoh. Haman and Pharaoh had a meeting how to stop the God of the Jews. Why? The writer of the Quran agreed that the Torah described Haman as a wicked person and Pharaoh as a wicked king. So he decided to create a fairy tale. What was the fairy tale? That both of them had a meeting and they want to go up to build a tower to go and fight against the God of the Jews. The only one problem here is that Haman is about a thousand years after the last Pharaoh died. So Haman and Pharaoh could never have a meeting. Maybe they can meet in hell, but in reality they could never meet. Why? Because there's a thousand years difference between one to another. And in the Quran, it describes that they met. So we see right away that the one who wrote that book made a critical mistake. There's other mistakes in the Quran. According to the Quran, do you know who the uncle of JC is? According to the Quran, who is the uncle of JC? You'll never believe that. Aaron and Moses, Moshe. Moses and Aaron are the uncles of JC. Why? Because the Quran knew that in the New Testament it says that Mary is the mother of JC. Mary, it's Miriam in Hebrew. And they read in the Torah that Miriam's brothers are Moses and Aaron. But there's only one difference, it's two different Miriams. The Miriam, the sister of Moshe and Aaron, she lived 1,300 years before the Miriam, the mother of JC. They were both Jewish women. One was very righteous, one was very wicked. Two different women, two completely different women, 1,300 years apart from each other, but the Quran mixed between them and turned them into one, and therefore the Quran made Moses and Aaron the uncles of JC that lived 1,300 years later. This is the book that in the name of this book lost to two billion people willing to kill the rest of the world. And if you review the books, there's hundreds of other mistakes. So the answer is, are we the Jews that receive the Torah from God also have such ridiculous mistakes in our book or not? The answer is, find me the first mistake. We'll make a deal. You find the first mistake in the Torah, you have the five books of Moses, Bereshit, Shmod, Vaikra, Bamidbar, Dvarim, in English, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You check all those four, five books, not only you do not find any human errors, you find that the answer to any question you had, and you may have, it's in the book. 
Do you ever find a book that 99% of it speaks about the future? If it's a history book, what history book speaks about what's going to happen one day? All history books in history speaks about the past. Review the Torah. Almost the entire Torah is what's going to happen to you from now for the future. I'm going to bring you into the Holy Land. There are seven nations sitting there with massive army, but don't worry. I will kick them out of the land. I will give you the land even though you don't have an army. You'll occupy the land. You will build Bet HaMikdash. If you don't listen to me, I will destroy it to you. I will spread you in the nations. Only few of you will survive. The Gentiles will never leave you alone for betraying me. How did he know all this? Remember, this was given 40 years before we entered the land. First of all, what human being would write a book and promise a nation and give them a book that they're going to occupy seven massive armies who sit in Israel right now, Canaan? What power he has, what authority he has to promise such a thing? If I take the American Indians today and I gather them here in Connecticut, and I say, dear American Indians, I'm giving you this book in the name of God, and I promise you, I'm going to let you occupy Russia, China, United States, Germany, France, and England. I promise you. Here is the book. Listen to my instruction. You're going to inherit their land. What the American Indians would tell me? <laughs> Just let us focus on our casinos making money here. Leave us alone with your nonsense. This is more or less what happened here. Comes a human being, Moshe ben Amram. He gives them a book. God gave me this book. They open the book. You're going to occupy the Holy Land. How? The seven massive army. The Emori, Girgashi, Prizi, Yevusi, Knani. The whole massive armies over there. We have women and children. We just came out of Egypt. Don't worry. Leave it to me. It happened. How did he know? How could he promise such a thing? What would happen? What would happen if it would not happen? The Torah promise it would happen. It's taking a huge risk. Let me give you another example. The Torah said to the Jews, I want you to eat kosher food. What does it mean, kosher food? It doesn't mean necessarily clean. It's also supervised, so usually it's clean. What does it mean, kosher food? It means that it's made according to the rules of the creator of the world. And the creator of the world told us in every kind of food what makes it kosher, what makes it not kosher. First, he divided the animals to two groups, pure and impure animals. The ones that are pure automatically are kosher. If the slaughtering and all the rest of the laws went through smoothly, the animals would be kosher. Animal that is impure, no matter how you slaughter it, no matter what you do with that, it will never be kosher. Same thing about things that live in the ocean. 72% of the world is water. When the Torah was given to the Jews, half of the species who lives today in the world did not exist yet. Yet the Torah promised to the Jews, if you want to eat something from the water that lives, in, and lives inside the water, you have to check two conditions, that it has fins and it has scales. If it has fins and scales, it's kosher. 
If it doesn't have one of the two above, it's not kosher. You don't need to know the name. You don't need to know where it came from. All of that is irrelevant. It's very, very simple. It's not like animals. You have to check the lawn, the bones. You know, the slaughtering has to be with a special knife. With fish, it's very, very easy. Not necessarily fish. You went somewhere fishing. I don't know, in Zimbabwe. You just caught something. You never saw it in your life. You check on the body. It has fins and scales. It's kosher comes the oral Torah, who was given to the Jews together with the written Torah, because without the oral Torah, there's no way to understand even one verse from the written Torah. The oral Torah comes and say, everything that you're going to find that have scales, for sure, will always have fins. You found scales, it has fins. So if you go to Costco, they cut it, fillet, they clean it, they cut it, and you see the skin on the fish. You don't see the fins. You don't see the fins. You go to Chinatown, you see half a fish. You don't see the fins, but you see scales on the skin. You scratch it, and they fall off very thin, you know, half clear. You look at them. Oh, there is scales. Kosher. Then your son will tell you, Abba, we only see the scales, but the Torah says fins and scales. Well, you answer to your son, so you're right. But the oral Torah promised, everything that has scales, for sure have fins. You will never find, in 72% of the world, the entire world, you will never find anything in the world that had scales but did not have fins. Which means, if we're going to find one, one species, one creature that we took out of the water, and we scraped it, and scales are falling off, but it did not have fins, that's the end of Judaism. Not the end of kosher food, the end of Judaism. Why Judaism depend on what kind of fish you're going to catch or not? The answer is, it's not about the fish. It's about the first human error that we found. Remember, the whole world is looking for that human error that we can find that will bring a very serious doubt into the Torah. Why? Why people are so anxious to find mistakes in the Torah? Why? Why this is the book that is attacked more than any other book in the history? Why? Because that's how people try to relax their conscience. If this guy with his yamaka, he keeps Shabbat, he eats only kosher, and I'm not. It bothers me. Why it bothers me? Because he is thinking he's better than me. Because he claims that he lives according to the rules of God. He's righteous and I'm wicked. How do I make myself righteous? I disqualify his book. I show that his book is nonsense. And therefore, I'm smart and he's foolish. Very easy way out. But if you want to do it, no problem. It's perfectly fair. But do it honestly. Without lying and deceiving. Find real human error. Find something that lives in 72% of the world that have scales and does not have fins, and you won the argument. But not only that, remember when the Torah was given, half of the species that we have today did not even exist yet. How the writer of the Torah knew to promise such a thing? The answer is because he controlled nature. He controlled nature. He knew what's going to be born. He knew what he will never let be created. He controlled everything. And the same one told us 
that he made a covenant with us as a Jewish nation, and the prize for keeping the covenant is life of eternity, full of the greatest pleasure that a person can imagine, spiritual pleasure. Physical pleasure, it's only temporary and it's gone. Up, one, two, three, and it's over. One hour, five hours, one day, two days. Person bought a car, the nicest car in the world. How long it makes him happy? Few days, few weeks, and it's over. He gets used to it. It doesn't excite him anymore. Person had the most delicious food in his life right now for the first time. Right away his reaction is, I want it every day. They tell him, no problem, you'll get it every day. Tomorrow he got it, the next day he got it, the next day he got it. We've been going on already for two, three weeks. Every day he enjoyed the food 1% less. First day 100%, second day 99%, third day 98%. After two months, when we serve him the food, he begins to cry. Oh, no, not again. So why? Look at you in a video two months ago. How saliva were dripping from your mouth when we were serving you the steak. Now when we're bringing you the same steak, you, you say, no, no, please, not again. Bring something. Bring me a piece of bread. You prefer bread than a steak? Of course, I can't look at that anymore. I'm tired of it. Every day the same thing. This is the law in a creation. Everything material, it's fake. It's not real. If you know the laws of physics, this world, it's a very fast movement of atoms. If you take out the energy that moves all of them, it becomes the size of a little gum. It's all in a beautiful illusion that Hashem created it in a world where we live here and it feels that it's all real. There's only one thing it's real, the soul, and where the soul will go when we die. What is it like? Take a fan. When you're hot, you put the fan on. And what happened? When you make the fan turn around very fast, it looks like it's a full circle. When you make it slow, you see that it's moving. It's not really a full circle. It's the movement of the fan. Same thing, the atoms. You can have a huge buildings. They move so fast that they create something that looks really real. I don't want to go too deep into it. I have a whole lecture about the illusion of material. But one thing we do know, that everything, every materialistic pleasure, it's temporary. It, for X amount of time, and the pleasure expires. After that, the pleasure may turn into a torture. But the original divine pleasure that the Torah promised to the souls of the righteous people after they leave this world, living according to the rules of God in his Torah. Torah in Hebrew means instructions. It's endless, it's eternal, and there is no pleasure that comes near it. As a matter of fact, the Torah gives us a beautiful analogy. The Torah says, if you take all the pleasure of all the peoples, of all the generations combined, Jews, non-Jews, all of them, billions of people of all the generations, Take all kinds of pleasure they ever had. Food, vacation, sport, women, money, jewelry, whatever you can think of. Combine all of it together will not be equal to one hour of the reward of a righteous Jew in the afterlife. Now we have to ask ourselves three questions and then I give you time for questions. Three questions we have to ask ourselves. What are they? First, how do I know there's afterlife? 
you just threw a bomb here and you want to get away with that? We want to know, first of all, the proof that there is an afterlife, right? You're telling me now I have to live according to the book. I'm willing to consider it. One thing I do want, first to prove to me that the book is really from God. Otherwise, why would I waste my energy? Fair enough? So rule number one, first prove to me the Torah is really from God. Second, prove to me there's afterlife. Third, the Torah speaking about heaven, reward to the righteous people. I just, not, it's not enough for me to know there's afterlife. I want to make sure that this afterlife is exactly like you promised. Because I don't want to live now 30, 40 years keeping Shabbat, eating kosher, not stealing, not this, not that, all kinds of things that I'm doing right now. I have to change. I have to fight against my desire. I have to be more honest. I have to be more hardworking. I have to be devoted. I have to wake up earlier. I have to close my business one day a week. This is all inconveniences for me. Before I'm willing to, 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 to sacrifice, I want one thing, prove to me that I really get a reward for that. And it's not just another promise, like the Muslim promise to the murderers that they go to heaven with 72 ladies. How do I know that by us it's not the same nonsense? Fair enough or no? Good questions or bad questions? What do you think? So really, for a clever person, all you have to do is to prove that the Torah is divine and a person could not write the Torah and the rest, whatever the Torah say, you take it 100% as the truth. You don't have to keep investigating, right? If I got a letter and the letter said that this letter was sent to me by Obama and I have the stamp of the White House and the, and the envelope of the White House and I'm not sure, maybe it's fake. A lot of people fake things today. But inside I see a video that Obama really say my name and he writes it and he gives it to the guy and he sealed it and I look at the envelope and he shows the serial number. He supplies me with lots of proofs that he actually wrote it and he gave me that check. And after that, after I received the check, I call the bank and I verify if it's the bank account of the White House. And the bank tells me 100% and the signature is 100% and everything is 100%. After that, the more evidence I get, the more I'm convinced that I'm going to see money for this check, no? Right or wrong? The same thing with the Torah. If you see that the Torah knew everything about the future, if you see the Torah have codes hidden in the text, mathematical hidden skips, who describe events that will be in a history a thousand or two thousand years later, a person was unable to do such a thing. If you see that the Torah is full of prophecies with description what's going to happen, no human being was able to even dream. If you knew, if you see the Torah had knowledge about nature, as I'm showing in my film Torah and Science, endless knowledge, not only about our planet, about all the galaxies, about the moon, about the sun. I'll give you one example. Looking at the sun today, we walk on the street in a sunny day. When we look at the sun, what do we see? What do we see? We see one circle, yellow, orange, the pen. That's it. We see like a light bulb. That's it. We see a circle that sends us heat and light. Do we, by looking at, by looking at the sun, do we see that the sun has a shell? that it's covered with a shell? 
we, from here to, to look at the sun? Do we see a shell? Today the scientists prove to us, beyond any doubt, that the sun is covered with special shell that prevent the radiation to come here and burn us in a second. But what would you say if I show you that King David wrote about it 3,000 years ago? The sun has a cover and the Gemara, which is the oral Torah, say that one day God will take the sun out of the shell. What's the purpose of that? It's not the time to get into it right now. But two things that the Torah say 3,000 years ago. What is it? That the sun has a shell. How does a person 3,000 years ago was able to know the sun is covered with a shell when we look at the sun, we don't see any shell. There's no satellite, there's no NASA, we don't even have the telescopes of today, we didn't have the measurements that we can take today with computers and mega computers, we didn't have all the tools. How did the Torah know that the sun has a shell? Imagine today they prove that the sun doesn't have a shell, we would look like complete fools. This is a huge risk to write in the Torah that the sun has a shell when later people would discover that it doesn't. But the Torah knew about it. The Torah knew the, the number of the stars in the universe. 400 years ago, before Galileo Galilei developed his telescope, any person in the world that you ask him how many stars the world has, they will tell you maximum 8,000 stars. Why? People reported that they stood on mountains and counted them manually. And the maximum number they ever came to up to is 8,000. Some say 6,000, 8,000, everyone agree, no, not more than that. And at the same time, you open the Jewish book, and what does it say over there? That the, that the Torah said, that God said, I created 12 sections in universe. And in each section, I created 30 armies. And in each army, I created 30 legion. And in each legion, I created 30 raton. And in each raton, I created 30 karaton. And in each karaton, I created 30 gisteras. And in each gisteras, I hung 365,000 multiplied by 10,000 stars. And all of that I created for you. Who is for you? The nation of Israel. And you have the nerve to complain to me that I left you and neglected you? This was written in the Babylonian Talmud 2,000 years ago after the destruction of the Second Temple, which the due date is in two days from now, this Tuesday, Tisha B'Av, the nine days of Av. The sages of the Jewish nation wrote in the Talmud that the Knesset Israel, the Jewish government of those days, asked God, dear God, a person get remarried and he never forget his ex-wife. How did you forget about us so much that you destroyed our house and left us here? The answer was, it's in the Gemara, Masechet Brachot, page 32. The Gemara says, God answered, I created such and such stars as I just described to you, and all of that I created for you. And you have the nerve to tell me that I left you? <coughs> Let's do the math together, 12 times 30. Times 30, times 30, times 30, times 30, times 365, times 10,000, give us 19 digits. In English, quadrillion, I don't even know how to say the number. It's 19 digits. 19 digits number. 
remember in a generation that everyone would swear that is maximum 8,000 stars, because there's no way to fly, no airplanes, no satellites, no telescope, no nothing. How did the Torah know, and you can go into NASA and they say the number of the stars, I show it in a film, original documents from NASA, from the German agency, and from other scientists that prove to us what the world has and doesn't have. The question is, who would gamble to write such a number in a Torah, in an oral Torah, not the written Torah, the oral Torah, with skeptics attacks even more than the written Torah. Some people say, the written Torah I cannot argue with. I see, I read it in my own eyes, I see God gave it. But the oral Torah, the rabbis made it up. The rabbis made it up. All these things that the rabbis say, they made it up. First, it's a very foolish claim. Why would the rabbi make the life of people hard? What for? They gain sympathy or they gain more resistance? If the Torah was very easy to keep and the rabbis decided to make it a thousand times harder, what did they gain by that? First of all, the Torah, the written Torah say, be very careful not to modify by my Torah by one letter. Anyone who will change my rules or will make new rules or decrease rules or one letter from the Torah lose his share to the world to come automatically and has to be put to death by the Jewish court. Now you tell me, the most righteous people who lived in a history such as Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, what incentive they would have to take the Torah of God and change it completely and make a new one, like some skeptic claim or some anti or atheist trying to claim because they are obviously not interested to keep the laws. And plus, if you review the written Torah, you find that you cannot keep one mitzvah without the oral Torah. I'll give you an example. The Torah says you have to circumcise every male born on the eighth day. You have to cut the orla. That's the word of the piece that we cut. It's called orla, with ayin. Without the oral Torah, nobody in a history would know how to perform circumcision. Why? Nobody would know where to cut. This world is a new world. It's a new thing, orla. Where is it? Some say here. Some say the nails. Some say it doesn't mean in the body. It's symbolic. Everyone would claim you have to cut in a different place. What happens if the baby is sick? The written Torah doesn't say if you're allowed to circumcise or not. When, does, when do you have to do it? During the day, during the night? The Torah did not say. Who is kosher to perform such a ceremony? Male, female, Jew, non-Jew, doctor? What happened if you forgot on the eighth day or you were forced not to do it? Can you do it later or it's too late? What's the punishment of someone who doesn't do it? Or what's the reward? None of it appears in the written Torah. There's hundreds of laws about what tool you use. How do you do it? What do you do with that after you cut? All these laws, none of them appear in a written law. Is it possible that God gave us such an important mitzvah that it's a covenant between us and him and won't explain to us how to do it? I'll give you now another example. The Torah says when a person becomes 13 years old, he has to put filin. When you review the written Torah, you don't find the word filin. How to make the filin? Nowhere in the written Torah it says how to do it. There's more than a thousand instructions how to create filin from the time he used to be a cow until he became filin. 
thousand steps, if one of them were done incorrectly, the entire tefillin is worthless. It's not kosher, you have to bury it in the ground. You're not allowed to use it. It's a sin to use it. Not only it doesn't help, it becomes a sin to use it. If 1,000 steps, one of them you messed up, the tefillin is not kosher and become a sin. Where these 1,000 steps appear in a written Torah, not even one of them is in. The Torah only says you have to put a sign on your hand. Which hand, it doesn't say, left or right. What part of the hand, it doesn't say. What to put, it doesn't say. What to write inside, it doesn't say. How to make the shape of it, it doesn't say. One side sheen with three, one side sheen with four, it doesn't say. What color, it doesn't say. From what animal, it doesn't say. Who is entitled to make it? A Jew, a goy, a, a female, male, doesn't say. How to make? Nothing. And the Torah say, someone who does not put it every day is a huge criminal against God. Do you understand what's happening here? God would tell us such a law and will give us such a punishment if we don't keep it, but he won't tell us how to make it. Even I wouldn't do such a bad job. And I never claim I'm God. So how, what's going on here? Whatever I told you right now applies to each one of the 613 laws of the Torah. Not one of them, you have instructions how to fulfill the commandments. All the Torah say very brief, the name of the commandments, one or two details sometimes, not always, and that's it. The Torah say, circumcision the same. The Torah say, every Jew must observe the Sabbath if he wants to be a Jew. If he doesn't keep Shabbat, he cut himself out of Judaism and is not considered to be a Jew. That's what the Torah say. The Torah does not say how to keep Shabbat. The Torah say that someone who does not keep Shabbat should be executed and have no share to the world to come. He loses eternity, everything. And he's not, when he comes in front of God, he doesn't send him where he sent the Jews. He send him where he sent the non-Jews. Different world. And I, wanna, I do not want to go into details. I just want you to get the point. Where does it say in the Torah the 39 restriction of Shabbat? Nowhere. It just says, this is the covenant with God. Veshamru Bnei Israel. what do we say in the Kiddush? And the nation of Israel observed the Sabbath to make the Sabbath an eternal covenant between me, who is speaking here? The creator of the world. Between me and the nation of Israel, it's an eternal covenant to show that I created the world in six days and in a seven day I rested. Anyone who will violate the rules of the Sabbath should be put to death by stoning and I will cut his soul out of my nation for eternity. This is, I just told you word by word from the written documents what we call the Torah. And it mentioned in the Torah 12 times and I did not write the Torah in case you get angry. Any anger you have, go to the Western world, put a note there and say to God that you disagree with his rules. I'm only reading to you the rules, but I did not write the rules. So the question now, 80% of the Jews in the world never heard what I just told you. Not only in America, in Israel also. You go to Tel Aviv, take any teenager, tell him, do you know what's the law of someone who does not keep the Sabbath? He doesn't want to rest. He does, it's his problem. Nobody knows. How many of you knew 
that according to the Torah, again, not according to me, remember what I say here, according to the Torah, you, if you don't believe me, come, I'll show you right now where it is. But according to the Torah, the punishment that the Jewish court has to give to a violator of the Torah, it's much more severe than the punishment of a murderer. That's what the Torah says. What does it teach us about what God thinks about a Jew that doesn't keep the Sabbath? What does it teach us? That which sin is worse, to, keep, to violate the Sabbath or to murder? Which one according to God, not according to our belief or what we got used to? According to the truth of the creator of the world. If we say that a non-observant of the Sabbath has to get a severe, more severe punishment than someone who murdered other person, what does it teach us about the violation of Shabbat? It's a very serious violation. It's not a joke. Some violations have a small punishment. For instance, you stole $100. According to the Torah, you don't go to jail. The police caught you. If we live according to the Torah today, you stole from your pen's wallet $100. If the police catch you today, they take you to arrest 48 hours until you see a judge, and then the judge send you to prison for a few months or to do service in a hospital because it's the first time. What does the Torah say? Pay 200 right away and you dismiss. You stole 100, the judge say pay 200 and goodbye. Don't waste our time. Next time, don't do it. You stole 1,000, you pay 2,000 and you're out. You stole a million, you pay 2 million and you're out. What happens if you don't pay? They take you, they sell you, you become a slave, you work until you pay back what you owe people. The Torah didn't give you a price for being a thief, like society does today. You know, just because you have a white color and that. The Torah says you stole, you're going to pay double. That's it. So we see over here, when it comes to stealing, today society gives bigger punishment to someone that steals. You send him to years in prison, but the Torah says just pay double. For instance, if somebody just got caught stealing $5 million, they send him to five years in prison here. And prison here is not a pleasant place. According to the Torah, he has to pay 10 million and he's dismissed. One day, he's back to his family. He paid 10 million and he finished. Why? Feel the pain of what you did to your friend. You stole from him 5 million, now you give him the five that you stole, and plus you give him a reward, 5 million. The person that got stolen from, he got something out of it. Now, he gets back his money, plus he gets extra money. What does it help him if the, if the thief goes to prison? Does it help me if he stole all my saving? And now the Judge Williams put him in prison. Did it help me? It's, my life is still destroyed. You see, this is an example how the secular law does not make any sense, but the laws of the Torah make a lot of sense. When it comes to Shabbat, to the Sabbath, According to the way we were brought up in America, or in Russia, or in Israel, in a secular lifestyle that we grew up in, all our teachers always told us, stay away from murderers and from thieves. Why? You don't have to be a religious to know that a murderer is a despicable human being, and a thief is just as bad almost. But nobody, nobody ever say, stay away from someone who's mechalel Shabbat. Why? The teacher who taught you is himself Mechalel Shabbat. Well, he's going to speak against himself. Nobody ever told in Israel to be a violator of the Sabbath is the biggest crime against God. Why? They didn't want Israel to become an observant of Sabbath. 
So they hid that. Same thing in Russia, the communists did not let. Same thing in the United States. Most Jews go to public school, they never heard about Shabbat. I meet Jews in places here, they never heard in their life what needs to be done, nothing. Go and explain to them that what they do every Shabbat, every week, it's worse than killing people. They're never going to believe you. Why? Because 30 years, people brainwashed them that nothing is wrong with driving the car on Shabbat. Nothing is wrong with smoking on Shabbat. Nothing is wrong with riding and doing all kinds of things that most Jews do. Most Jews, when you tell them that, they look at you like you're out of this world. You're crazy. You're completely crazy. Some of them get even very angry and, and offended. But if we are honest, you have to stick to the text. You don't believe in a Torah? Come argue with me. Watch my Torah and science. After that, you will never make a beat. However, until you check, you have to take it as the truth. What logic you have to gamble on your eternity for driving a car on a seventh day? Do you understand the price you're going to pay? You have to think about it. What happened if this rabbi was right? Let's assume right now we don't know. Maybe I'm a liar, maybe I'm making it up. You have the right to think whatever you want. It's fair, fair game. But until you check and verify what I said, how would you dare to light another cigarette on Shabbat? Because if I'm right, you are lost for eternity. We're not talking about a little holocaust here, that the body died and the soul goes to heaven. That's a much worse outcome here. A Jew would lose his connection to God for eternity, for violating the Sabbath. We're not, okay, so I lost a million dollars. Big deal, I still have 10. We're not talking about this. We are talking, if I'm wrong, no problem. You can go back to do whatever you want. So you stay in your situation. But if I'm right, oi, 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 every second that you may dare to do it again. So now let's make a fair deal. You don't have to believe me. Here is the CDs, take the Torah and science, but pay attention to it, not just put it and play with your phone. Sit for a few hours in your life and check the details. And after that, you watch, you listen, you can listen in my car to the lecture about Shabbat, who gives all the proofs about Shabbat, what it means. After you listen to those two lectures, I promise you that from 20 years experience, I did not find one person. And I reached millions. I did, not want I did not find one person, a Jew or a non-Jew, no matter how much he hate religion or religious people, I did not find one person that was able to win an argument against what I showed her. And I promise you, take my word for that. You want to be the first one? Go ahead. Listen to all the details. My email is on a CD. Attack. You're free to attack as much as you want. You, you're also free to make a YouTube video against me. Some people tried. They make themselves look like a bigger fool than what they were. You can make a YouTube video with your claims against me. And then I will reply to your claims, and then you see that you're wrong. No problem. It's fair game, fair. The media is open. You can see what I show in a video. You don't believe it. You think I made it up. You think there is no source for it? I'm telling you already that I'm very, very careful. I do not say anything unless if I have a source in the Torah for it. But if you want to give it a shot, no problem. Attack! And give me a chance to reply. And you see in the end that everything that I told you is 1 million percent authentic and divine. Now let's give uh, 5 minutes, 10 minutes for questions if you have. And we'll finish right here. 
And like I say, you have free CDs here. Please take advantage on them. For those who do not keep Shabbat, the CDs that I recommended to start with is Torah and Science, Life After Death, because we still have few, few points to prove. How do we know there's life after death? How do we know the reward that the Torah promised to the righteous people? It's all in my CD, Life After Death. Scientific proof that life really begins in the time of death. Torah and Science, Life After Death, and CD number one. CD number one, it's for the car. You drive and you listen and you get educated in things that perhaps you never heard before. If you have more times, watch the debate that I had with a Christian professor, very educative debate that already affected the, the life of thousands of Christians, some of them priests that left the church after they watched that debate. I actually brought him to the point that in the end of the debate, he said, you can see it in the end, you put me in a hole, I do not know where, how I'm going to get out of there. And I say to him, I just proved to you that Christianity is a false religion. It was never given by God. And he didn't say no. His answer was, but my heart will not let me leave it. I got used to it. 31 years he teach Christianity in Manhattan, in the University of the Christians. How all of a sudden he's going to stand on the stage to all his thousands of students and tell them, ladies and gentlemen, everything I taught you until now was all baloney. Need to be very, very, <laughs> to have a lot of courage. I'm not expecting it from him. But one thing I do expect, that when you, the Jews, that will see the details, you will do something about it because eternity is something very precious than losing it. Nobody wants to lose it. Please pay attention to the details. No one here has to become a rabbi overnight. That's not the demand here but to start making changes, kosher food. It's very easy, every other store is kosher today. Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, New Jersey, almost everywhere you have. Almost every other product in a supermarket, or you, or K, Star K, a lot of ashgachot. Almost everything is kosher. Today to, to eat kosher food became very, very easy. It used to be very difficult 30, 40 years ago. Baruch Hashem, today almost everywhere you go, Mexico, Europe, you already see ashgachot in almost every product. So that's one thing. Second, keeping Shabbat is not as hard as you think. You gather the family together, you make a meal. If you have shul nearby, you walk to the shul. If you don't have, you don't go to shul at all. You don't drive to the shul. Not allowed to drive on Shabbat. You begin to learn the laws of beginners for Shabbat. You're not allowed to sew, you're not allowed to write. What's recommended to do? You invite some guests, you do beautiful, it's like a holiday every week. Everyone gets dressed nicely, come to shul, hear singing, people speak on the table about Torah. What's wrong with that? And for that you get eternity. What is the problem of keeping it? Really there's none. After three months that you get used to the new lifestyle, you cannot live without it. You don't believe me? I can show you thousands of emails that I got over the years of people that say, now after I keep, I understand when you when I started, I couldn't believe I can do it. Now when I keep Shabbat already for a few months, all week I'm waiting for it. When is Friday already? Coming, changing my clothes, going to shul, meet all my friends. Beautiful, fantastic. But until we get to there, let's go one step at a time. First, to review the CDs. Any questions you have, I'm right here. And after that, Bezrat Hashem, slowly, slowly to become stronger and stronger. I have many, many thousands of people like you. 
that used to be complete atheist, complete non-observance, and Baruch Hashem today they keep everything. I'm not asking you to change, to start growing beards, or to dress black and white, or to look Hasidish. That's not the point here. All these things, it's uh, one day if you want to do it, you can do it. We're only focusing on the main thing right now, is do I consider myself a, a, a loyal Jew that keeps the laws of God, or I betrayed him and I'm ungrateful to him every day of my life? That's what we have to figure it out right now. Do I want to be someone who goes against my Creator every minute? Whatever he gave me, I use against him. Or I want to take what he gave me and use it as he instructed me to, to do. Any questions before we finish? Yes. Uh, how many years were the Jews in the desert in Egypt for? The Jews were in Egypt 210 years. Didn't, um, where's that from? The Torah say, Redu, 210 years. The Gemara say, how long they were in Egypt? 210 years. From the time of Abraham, 430 years. No, he wasn't told that. That's not what it says in the Bible. 400, he said. It says 400, right? Yes. And what the Torah said? The Torah said that Hashem decreed 400 years of, of going to slavery. The only problem is that the Egyptians were pushing into every day extra hours, which the, double the amount, which the calculation went down to 210 years. Why? Because they, if I, if if I want to make you my slave, so I'm letting you work eight hours a day, no problem. Based on that, it's 400 years. But if I push 15 hours a day, what happened? You're not going to work double. The decree is for X amount of hours. If they push too much, Hashem made it shorter. Plus, one more thing you should know, there's a rule in the Torah. Every bad prophecy does not have to happen. Good prophecies must happen no matter what happened. If God promised something to the Jews, and all Jews, God forbid, became wicked after the promise, the promise will still take place. But if God say, this will happen to you, something bad, and it did not happen, the Torah said, that doesn't mean that it was a false prophecy. Why? Because people make repentance and it cancels all the, the bad decrees. So any bad decree in a Torah can be canceled even a day before it happens. Just like with Jonah, that Hashem sent him to the city of Nineveh and he told them in 40 days Hashem will destroy all of you. And what did the Goyim? They were all non-Jews. They all made repentance. They started to wear sacks, to fast, to sit on the street and pray to God. And what happened? He canceled the decree. He did not kill them in the end. Why? They made shuva. And there are hundreds of examples like this, that there was a bad decree that was changed or was completely canceled because people did things that changed the bad decree. Same thing over here now. If we had, God forbid, an annihilation, and another million Jews will become observant of the Sabbath. They can dismiss the entire bad plan. Okay? So remember this. Everything that the prophets say that will happen bad doesn't have to happen. They say when the Messiah would come, two-thirds of the people in the world would die in minutes. That's Zachary 14. But it doesn't have to be this way. If most of the world would get rid of all the prostitution, of all the drugs, 
of all the cheatings and all, all the uh, idolatry and all the idol worshiping and the murders and the terror and all these things that make God very angry at us. Why should he destroy the world? The opposite. He wants more people to enjoy salvation. However, the Torah says, who the Messiah would come from? Only for Jews who made repentance. Only to the Jews who came back from their crimes against me, God says. For them I send the Messiah. Some people will only see the Messiah and CNN for a few minutes. If you know what I mean. But how do we know that? You, you just gave a long explanation to explain a contradiction between two different timelines there. There's no contradiction. The Torah explained it. How long it was? How long the Jews were there? Yes. Two different. How do we know that the Muslims and the Christians don't also have a five-minute-long explanation? No, I just gave you. I gave you mistakes that they have in their texts about reality of things that happened in the past. It says in the New Testament that the cave of Abraham, Isaac, and ja it says that in the New Testament that Jacob went to Egypt with seventy-five people. We know that he went with seventy. That's it. End of story. God doesn't make such mistakes. When something is predicted to the future to, uh, to be bad to us or to the world, remember, the Torah itself said that it doesn't have to happen. It's not a contradiction. But something that we're now talking about the history and describe it in, in wrong details, we cannot claim that God made such a mistake. God knows the past. No? He knows what happened or what did not happen. If he writes that the cave is in the city of Shechem, and every fool sees in Hebron, it's nothing to do with a bad prophecy, or it's reality. Where is the cave today? Hebron. Where was it a thousand years ago? Hebron. Where was it two thousand years ago? Hebron. How it says that it's uh, in the city of Shechem? You understand? That's a human error, not prediction. Human error means I tell you now the Twin Towers are in Brooklyn, and you know they are not. That's end of story. That's a mistake. That's a human error. More questions, please. Yeah. They say spinning seed is a very big sin, right? One of the worst, yes. some people say. Yes. In the Sahara, yeah. right? But the Torah doesn't go on about it that much, especially the written Torah, right? right? There was just one episode with Onan, and then it wasn't clear whether it was because right. where, you know, he didn't impregnate his brother's wife or he still seed. Yeah. But yeah, it goes on about milk and meat three times. Right. And all the other laws. But right. it only touches on that. So how can it be such a bad sin if it's not if it was such a terrible sin wouldn't it be spoken of more in the Torah wouldn't we wonder about first allow me to correct you the Torah it's not only the written Torah you look at the Torah that the main Torah it's the written and the secondary Torah it's the oral that's where the mistake begins from the written and the oral are equal not only that if the, if the Gentiles would come with a gun to our hand today and say you have to give up one of the two Torahs, the written and the oral, if now we kill you all, which one we would have to give them? We would have to give them the written. Why? Because without the oral, there's nothing we can do. The oral is Judaism. 99% of what we do comes from the oral Torah. So everything in Judaism is Torah Shebaal Peh, oral Torah. So that's rule number one. Most of the important things in life comes from the Oral Torah. Remember, if you take out the Oral Torah from the written Torah, you cannot understand anything. You don't understand about murder. You don't understand about giving birth. You don't understand about wasting seed. 
even what you gave an example that it appears in the Torah three times, it's incorrect. It doesn't appear in the Torah at all. The Torah only says, Without the oral Torah, we would never even imagine that it's telling us not to eat milk and dairy, meat and dairy together. Everything that you know, everything I know, everything everyone in the world knows comes from the oral Torah. So therefore, from now on, don't distinguish between parts of what we know we don't know. Everything comes from the oral Torah, everything. The laws of the Sabbath, oral Torah. The laws of circumcision, oral Torah. The laws of murder, oral Torah. Wasting seed, oral Torah. Life after death, oral Torah. Resurrection of the dead, oral Torah. Everything oral Torah. Nothing from the written Torah. Remember this. That will give you a rest for hundreds of questions that you live with, which come from an inaccurate source. The problem is that people think the oral Torah is the Torah, and, the, and the, is the written Torah is the Torah of God, and the oral Torah is questionable. Wrong. i give you an example. In the written Torah, it says a few times that God said to Moses, do it as I showed you in the mountain. But it doesn't say in the written Torah what he showed him. It's not important to write it in a written Torah. Ha, you have to build a menorah for the holy temple, the important gold menorah. He doesn't say how to make it. He says, do it as I showed you in the mountain. Or in the circumcises, few times he say, do it as I showed you. Why can't you write another three, four verses in the Torah that everyone would know what you showed him? Why? It doesn't matter. Anyway, he comes and teach the nation, and they teach the children, and they teach the children. You don't need to write it. Now comes to the final question, and maybe we'll finish with that. Why God did not write the oral Torah also in a book? Why he gave a written book, which is 1% of Judaism, and 99% of them went verbally from generation to generation? Doesn't make sense, no? Write everything. Nobody would argue, everything is black and white, end of story. The answer is, not only it's not foolish, it's the most brilliant thing that happened in this creation. Why? A very solid rule in a written Torah is that there is a major difference between Jews to non-Jews. Until the Jews received the Torah, all people were equal. Once the Jews received the Torah, God wrote in his Torah, and the Christians does not, does not deny it, neither the Muslim, I'm choosing you to be my children from all the nation. From this moment on, I'm giving you my Torah. You became the chosen people. You have to be holy because I'm holy. You cannot eat from their food. You cannot dress like them. You cannot use their names. You're not allowed to marry any other nation. Even the worst Jew cannot marry the best Gentile in the world. The Gentile is righteous and has a share to the world to come according to his level. And the worst Jew who has no share to the world to come because he violates any possible laws, but the wicked Jew is still not allowed to marry the righteous Gentile. It's nothing to do with racism, nothing to do with discrimination, anything whatsoever. What? I isolate you from the rest of the world I'm Levadadishkon. You are isolated. No one would like you. Everyone would go against you. Everyone would be jealous with you. And everyone would kill you. But you're going to have a happy end. You have nothing to complain about. I made you the VIP, my children. 
בנים אתם להשם אלוקיכם. No other nation in history got this title, children of God. Only the Jewish people, it's in them what the Christian believe, the Old Testament. And many Christians told me personally, hundreds, bottom line, you are the chosen people. Bottom line, they're not denying it. You have to know one thing. The reason God did not write all the rules in a book, because after two, three generations, no one in the world would be able to tell who is a real Jew and who is a fake Jew. Why? If everything is written in a book, and the Torah was translated to 70 languages right away. Then imagine one Arab somewhere in a, in a desert that heard that the Jews received the book from the creator of the world. He wants also to be one of the nations of God. Many Egyptians came out of Egypt and Moshe converted them because they saw what happened in Egypt. So this Ahmed, he takes now the Torah translated to Arabic. He sees in the Torah how to keep the Sabbath, how to make the feeling, how to circumcise, how to dress, have, how to write a Sefer Torah, how to write a mezuzah, how to slaughter the animals, how to everything he has in a book. He doesn't need the rabbis. He doesn't need to convert. He show up one day. Remember, there was no internet that you can check on people on Google. It was a very old primitive generation. The Jews live in Israel. One person walk in. Hi, what's your name? David. Yosef. Not Yusuf, Yosef. Oh, where are you from? Uh, I was left over in this country. How are you going to know if he's a Jew or not? He has tefillin. He knows how to pray. He circumcised all these babies according to the law. All his riding, mezuzot, everything is kosher. Everything is fine. Speaks Hebrew, everything. How would you know? There's no way to tell who's a Jew and who's not. Even today in the world, you see 100 people. You know which one is a Jew, which one is not. There's no way to know. People with the last name Cohen, they are 100% goyim, non-Jews. People with the name Smith or Christine or all kinds of things, 100% Jews. I met one time in business a person named Chris Cohen. His mother was Jewish, his father was a Christian. They call, they, they, uh, the opposite, the mother, the, the mother was, uh, uh, no, actually, both parents were Jewish. I asked him, what kind of name is this Chris? I don't know, my parents decided to call me this name. I said, but your father is Cohen, your mother is Jewish, you sure? Yeah, 100%, 25 years ago. What? His name is Chris. Some people, their last name is Stern, they're 100% going because the mother is not Jewish. The, the last name doesn't mean, you can, the last name can be Cohen or Levy and you're not, not Jewish. The last name can be Williams, and you're 100% Jewish. So therefore, there's no way to know who is a Jew and who is not. The only way the Jews can protect themselves, if the laws, the divine laws of God, goes from rabbi to student, from father to son, verbally. That now when Ahmed come and try to pretend that he's a Jew, he won't know how to make tefillin, because it's not written anywhere. He won't know how to perform circumcision, because it's not written anywhere. He won't know how to slaughter the animal. He won't know the sacrifice of Passover. He won't know how to make matzot with all the laws. Why? Because it's nowhere. Only the Jews kept it. I'll give you one last example. You know when we make tefillin today? There's few families in Israel that have the secret. They don't teach anybody from the outside. If I want to now go and make tefillin, I go to one of them, I want to work for you, teach me how to make tefillin, they don't agree. They only teach their own people. So I don't know, X amount, I don't know how many family, 10, 20, 50, whatever, it's not relevant. 
They only teach their own people to have this secret. They don't teach to others. Why? Now, if I even want to make, I don't know how to make. Well, just by me reading it in a, in a Shulchan Aruch, I need experience. It's not enough to read the instruction. If I read in Google how to change brakes to my car, would I do a good job? If I work three months in a garage, yes. Without experience, I won't be able to do it. So you understand? This was a brilliant decision. Plus, if God would write his entire Torah in one written book, the size of it would be all the way from here to Monsi. You will need a semi-trailer every time you want to bring it to a lecture. Why? You know how wide is the Torah? Look at the whole Talmud. Look at all the books. Add everything into one book. It's the size of your hand. You need five people to carry it. The Torah now, as we carry the Torah, I cannot lift it. On Shabbat, they give you Agbaha. You have to pick it up and to go like this to show it. I promise you, something is fall from my hands. Very heavy. Multiply it by 100. Who would be able to pick it up? So that was done by the, um, the rabbis. Not by the rabbis. Moshe, Moshe brought it down when he told them, God, you see in the Torah, you have to circumcise a male on the eight days. They right away ask you, what does it mean to circumcise? What does it mean to cut the orla? Moshe said, come, let me demonstrate. He took the baby that was born, eight days, today it's the eight day. He showed everyone how to do circumcision. He taught the 70 elder rabbis there. And they taught the people, and it started to spread. Every question they had, they came to him. He corrected them until everyone in Israel already, it was a, a way of living. They knew how to circumcise baby. Now he told them, you want to eat animals? There's a way to kill them. You cannot shoot them. You cannot stab them. You have to slaughter them with a sharp knife. You have to put salt. They said, what do you mean? Say, come, let me show you. He showed them how to slaughter, and the rest, they taught the nation. Now, you have to write Sefer Torah with a feather, how to make the ink, how to write it, where to put separation. How would they know? He wrote Sefer Torah, he gave to each tribe, and now they have a way where, they, where to copy from. So all the laws, Moshe taught them verbally. And of course, without it, we wouldn't have what we have. But I want to tell you one thing. When the Jews came to Israel, the Polish Jew, the Russian Jew, the Persian Jew, the Syrian Jew, the Yemenite Jew, Jews from all over the world gathered in Israel. They all have mezuzot in the same right side, same Shema Israel inside, same tefillin. Did you ever see one nationality brought tefillin in a different color, different shape? They all have the same. Same Sefer Torah, same tzitzit, same everything. Everything the same. Why? To be more precise, 99.5% the same. There's some changes in the customs, I'm not saying no. But this is outrageous. This is incredible. This is incredible. Nobody ran after Christianity to destroy them or Islam. They have thousands of different versions. More than 200,000 New Testament, one different than the other. Hundreds of different Korans. Judaism, one Torah, one mezuzah, one tefillin, one Shabbat, one circumcision, one matzah. Everything one. With no internet, with no telephone. The Jews were scattered all over the world. They all gathered to Israel, same Torah, same everything. Different accent, different color of a skin, different food, different clothes. Same Torah, same tefillin, same everything. That's enough for a clever person. You don't need more than that. Something like this can never be 
in reality happen without the supervision of the creator of the world. Thank you very much again. Please take CDs. We'll see you in the future again. Thank you.